Welcome to Set Free 24-7. My name is Robert. I'm happy that you're here today. I have a special treat for you. My wife and I were out today at the West Michigan Restorative Justice Conference. The title of the conference was Radical Mission, Inspiring Collaborative Action Through Restorative Culture. We had the distinct pleasure to listen to Jim Wahlberg share his testimony, and it was absolutely amazing. I am so glad that I had this recorded so that I can share it with you. I hope that you are blessed by this. A little bit about Jim Wahlberg. He aims to serve God by writing, speaking, filmmaking, and serving the community. James serves as the executive director of the Mark Wahlberg Youth Foundation, which was created to improve the quality of life for inner city youth through a working partnership with other youth organizations. James Wahlberg is a producer, writer, and director of films, and uses his talents and experience to raise awareness about opioid addiction and point to the hope that is found in Christ. He is the author of The Big Hustle, a Boston Street Kids story of addiction and redemption, and he's also the host of The Bottom Line Podcast. James has been married to his lovely wife, Benny, for 30 years, and they have three children. His testimony was amazing and it impressed me the most that he took the time out of his day yesterday to go to Ionia prison and speak to a group of about 130 guys. I'm not going to tell his story or what happened there, but I will start his testimony right now so that you can join in and hear the amazing things that God has been doing. Sit back, enjoy this, and be blessed. Hopeful that is for them. Right? 
it's again, I can tell them a story, I can tell them what happened to me, in a, and it's been 30 years since. But, but they don't know me, and they may never see me again. The next time they see me, it might be on TV, it might be wherever, right? It's this kind of a distant thing. And I know that we connected on a very deep personal level, there's no doubt in my mind, right? But it's not me that's going to make the impact on them. It's you that's going to make the impact on them. It's you that shows up time and time again. It's you that has the same encouraging message time and time again, right? It's you that other people that they're, they start out afraid of, right? You're, you're, you're in John Q. Public. You're the people that rent apartments and hire people and, you know, sell cars and do all the things that we have to learn how to do. I had to learn how to, I had to learn how to drive when I got out of prison. I never drove a car illegally. I never had a driver's license. Uh, I never had my own place to live. I had to learn how to get it, you know, turn on the electricity, turn on the phone. They used to have phones in the house and stuff. I love that way. <laughs> but I had to learn how to do all those things, right? Um, and there were people there that were kind and generous that taught me. Um, what I want to do is I want to start. I want to I want to read um, <clears throat> the dedication of my book. I'm not trying to talk to you into buying it, but it's really good. <laughs> and it's really cheap. And I don't want to carry them back. Um, I want to, uh, hopefully, I can get through it. Um, I've yet to be able to get through it without it making me emotional because I really, even, I never thought about the dedication part of the book, right? I thought about writing the book. I spoke to my writing partner today and, um, this was divinely inspired. Right? This was God talking to me in an intimate moment, right? Who I needed to recognize. Um, and so I'll, uh, I'll read the dedication. This book is dedicated to the women who have impacted my life and, in fact, saved my life. To our blessed Mother Mary, for your continued intercession on my behalf, for the love and mercy you have always shown me. To Saint Mother Teresa, for your yes to our Lord and to the poor and forgotten, your kindness and mercy changed everything for me. To Mother Elvira of Communita Chinacala, for your, for your sacrifice, your service, and your joy. You have been a reflection of God's love and mercy for me and my family, as well as thousands of other families you have touched. To my mother, Alma, who suffered greatly as a result of my addiction, thank you for never giving up on me and for your endless prayers. To my wife, Benarada, my partner, my best friend, your love and support have meant the world to me. Our Lord picked you to walk on this journey with me, and you have made me a better man. You are the love of my life. Thank you for everything you have done for me and for our family. And to my daughter, Kyra, thank you for being the amazing young woman of God you are. You are under my prayers always. Um, I just want to 
I think everybody knows who most of those people are. There's one person here that you definitely don't know who she is, and that is uh, Mother Alvira from Communitatio And um, so I want to just briefly tell you a little bit about Communitatio which is a Catholic community for addicts. Started in Italy 40 years ago by a nun, very similar to Mother Teresa, who was part of an order, but felt in her heart this call to serve this particular population. And in her heart, it wasn't necessarily just addicts, but the young people, because she saw them just wandering around, lost and alone, right? Suffering in this internal pain. And, and so, again, similar to Mother Teresa, she started writing to her bishop, into the head of her order, I wanna, God's calling me, please. And eventually, because she did it so much out of aggravation, they freed her to go do that, right? And um, she started one little piece of property in Italy, and now they have 75 houses around the world. They have orphanages. They have guys who are addicts, full-blown heroin addicts that have become priests. They have uh, guys and girls that were fully addicted who are now running these mission homes and orphanages around the world. Amen. Right? Yeah, amen. is right, brother. Amen. Um, so we came to know Chinopolo by way of my son's addiction. So I'm a person in long-term recovery. In May, on May 9th, I'll celebrate 35 years of recovery. And I'll share a little bit of that journey with you, um, but I'm jumping way ahead to talk about my son Daniel just for a minute. So, my children, their entire lives, have heard a message of we don't, we can't use alcohol and drugs the way other people do. It's just our DNA, our makeup tells us, our history, our family history tells us on both sides we're not good at this. So we need to not, this is probably not a good plan for us, right? And so my firstborn, Daniel, in particular, who is an amazing, young, sensitive, gentle, loving, kind, talented man, um, he started experimenting with marijuana, right? Um, and then it became more of an experiment, right? And then it was a daily thing. And then there was money missing. And then there was arrest. And then it was being thrown out of school. And all these things started to happen to him. And, you know, I'm a person in recovery, so I think I have all the answers. I know exactly what to do in this situation. But guess what? Our kids, they ain't listening to us. <laughs> he wasn't listening to me, right? I tried to lay out a roadmap map I followed, but it wasn't the message, I don't think. It might have just been the messenger, right? Sometimes that's the way it is. And so we tried everything. Recovery programs, treatment programs, sober houses, you know, taking, I took him to a thousand meetings, um, and then he would just go get out, right? And, um, and so my wife, who is an amazing woman who watched her brother suffer from addiction her entire life. And she watched her family handle it 
wrong her entire life. She wants her mother enable her brother in allowing him to sleep on her couch in the senior citizens building for years. And so when this came, when this this evil, what it is, let's call it what it is, when it found its way into my home, um, she knew that she couldn't make the same mistakes. And so she was home watching television as I was in my car driving my son from Bottomdale, Florida to Rhode Island to another treatment program. She was home watching television. She was watching EWTN. That's the Catholic Television Network, for those of you who don't know. And first time ever, the guys from this community were on there giving their testimonies. And she, had, she was watching it that day. And the bishop who brought these wonderful good people to America and open houses in America was there talking about this community. And my wife, they provided the phone number, and my wife called the phone number. And the bishop answered the phone. And my wife said to him, we are in trouble. My family is falling apart. My son is a drug addict, and we need help. And this, we know that God is the answer. And that was the beginning of a journey with that beautiful community that never asked me for a penny. Not one cent did they ever ask me for. My son, it's a three-year commitment. I see heads going, what? Three years. Think about this. Think about trying to sell that to somebody, right? The worst, the person in the worst condition you can possibly imagine. Hey, I got, I got an answer for you. I got a solution for you. I got this wonderful, amazing organization that's going to help you. It's a three-year commitment. They're gone before you. The word commitment is out of your mouth, right? So it's not. It's it's never the first choice. It's always the last choice, right? It's always being beaten into a state of reasonableness where you have no other option, right? And after the families spend every dime and exhaust their health insurance and do everything else that they do in order to try to save their children, right? Then they get beaten into a state of reasonableness and they say, "Okay, we're going to try this." And then they try it, and then after a few months, they see their kid, and the kid looks incredible. They go, oh, my kid's all better. i got to get on here, right? We forget about all of the sleepless nights. We forget about all the calls from the police department. We forget about everything. We just want our kid back. And that, it's at that point in our journey, that was when I became a part of the problem instead of a part of the solution, right? And that happens. I became part of the problem because... I needed to understand that God doesn't have any grandchildren. We are all God's children. And my son is God's child, just like I am. And that if he allows God and he relies on God to take care of him, he will. Right? And he will even in spite of that. He doesn't do that. Right? Um, my son goes to this community. And we journeying with him. I thank God I was so for anybody that read my book um, I had a major conversion in prison major conversion in prison Mother Teresa came to the prison I was in the way I look at this is God sent his number one assistant for me because I wasn't getting it I wasn't hearing it I wasn't I wasn't I didn't see the breadcrumbs that he was leaving everywhere for me right I didn't see them she came there, and for me, she was, it was like, I was seeing the face of God, right? And I was thinking about that, 
part of my testimony last night um, as it relates to you people. Mother Teresa said, do small things, little things with great love. Right? With great love. I think about being in a cell and I wrote some names down, a few names. Nick, your name was the first name I wrote down. Right? Um, I just really, I'm really impressed, brother. I'm sorry, I don't mean to call you out, and I know you're getting red and you're getting a little uncomfortable. But your impact is incredible. Your example is amazing. Right? It's powerful for these guys to see what a man is. Right? I didn't have an example of what a man was. A real man. Right? And to be to see what is possible, what is really possible, is uh, there's nothing more inspiring and uh, in real. Um, so my son, after a year and a half, agrees finally that he'll go and at least look at this particular program. And I don't want to call it a program because it is not a program. And I always get mad when other parents incorrectly call it a program. This community of public sinners is what Mother Alvera calls this community. <laughs> we are a community of public sinners. Okay? And uh, and so, you know, his life spiraled out of control. He was beaten into a state of reasonableness. Because at this point, this was our only option. And this was the only thing we were willing to discuss. Because we knew that God was the answer. And, um, and so he agreed to go and check it out. And what they do is, uh, and this will make a lot of people in this room kind of a little uncomfortable. <laughs> you go there for three days. <coughs> drop your child off in the morning. Well, the person who's considering you need to drop them off in the morning. And you come back later in the day and pick them up. And they live community. So they're there, and they're withdrawing. They're struggling. They're sick. They're confused. They're broken. And they're living with these guys who have been in this community. They get appointed a guardian angel, another guy in the community who's been walking with the Lord for a, a period of time, whatever that period of time is. And uh, and so they're doing the work, and they're and it's hard, and it's hot, and it's nasty, and they're praying, and you know it's it's not easy. And then at the end of the three days, the community decides, okay, we think this is, he's a good candidate, and then. Daniel, are you willing to come to the community? Yes, I'm willing to come to the community. Okay, Dad, take him home and come back in two weeks. I'm like, what? No, no, I'm to take him now. I can't take this. And I'm saying, he ain't coming home. We were already past that. We, there was no more coming home, right? It was, you're on your own, right? This is, you're on your own. Can't, I can't do this anymore. I have... These other children that are being impacted, I have, you know, um, and so we left there, and, and two weeks later came, and my son had a bunch of excuses, he couldn't go, and then another week went by, and a couple more excuses, and then finally they were like, listen, he either comes or he doesn't, and that's it, bro, we worked out. And so he, he came, he showed up at my house, and I dropped him off in that community, and um, it began, we began our journey with the community. And with walking in faith 
with our child. And, uh, and we struggled. So I told you it's a three-year commitment. And I remember three years was up. I like that. And we were there, and it was three years was up, and I was nervous, and I, my son came to me, and he said, hey, Dad, I think I'm going to stay for another year. And I said, okay, that's beautiful. And then at four years, I went, and he said, hey, Dad, I think I'm going to stay for another year. <laughs> yeah. He was living in Europe. He was traveling around. They, uh, they used the arts a lot. They helped people find their gifts, right? Because so many people have so... God, we all have gifts. God has given each and every one of us gifts and talents, right? We just have to figure out what they are, right? And, um, yeah, he, he he just stayed. He just... He, he was in Europe, living in Europe in one of the, home, of the houses, and they were traveling around with a play, the credo, the creed, right? the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what they were performing at World Youth Day. And all these places just traveling around. And that's what they did. And these guys, every one of them, every actor in the show was a member of community. Every stagehand was, was a member of community. Every person building every set, sewing every costume, everything was done by these guys and girls that just a few years ago, and some of them just a few months ago, were the tornadoes running through the lives of their families, right? And, uh, and so I see this healing, and I become part of this healing. And, um, and I realize that, you know, I always... I always knew that God was the answer for me, and um, but I tried to run from it, and I tried to hide from it. And I'm a guy, I need to see examples of God's love and God's mercy. I need to see it, I need to touch it, I need proof, right? Which is kind of contradictive to the word faith, right? And the practice of faith, right? We're, we're believing in something that we can't see. Um, There were people along the way that um, that touched me in a way that is really too big to ever really fully understand or to fully comprehend. And some of them were not faithful people, and some of them were very faithful people. But um, one was um, Lynn Levy. Program that Lynn started and ran for 40 years was called SPAN. And Lynn worked in the prison system for 40 years. For 40 years, Lynn got in her car and she drove to the maximum security state prison in Massachusetts, the medium security state prison in Massachusetts, the minimum security prison in Massachusetts, and she prepared people to be released. Right? She helped people prepare to come home. And I met Lynn uh, after having my experience with Mother Teresa and um, finding my faith and finding hope. This is an important part of, of my journey was, so I'm in prison. I'm doing six to nine years. I had already done five years. I did a 
three to five year sentence, which I should have did two years on, I did five years on it. Okay? Because of uh, my inability to to trust, my inability to turn towards the, the real solution for me. So my inability to stand up and be a man or to take any responsibility for who I was or what I was because I, I wasn't capable of doing that, right? Um, I went to prison at 17 years old. Maximum Security State Prison, 17 years old. I got a three to five year sentence. When I got there, a nice social worker or a counselor or whatever her title was sat me down and broke down what my sentence should look like. You're gonna be eligible for parole in two years, you'll be out. Starting your life over, right? All you got to do is don't get in any trouble. Maybe get involved in this program or that program. And just keep your head low and, and, and you'll be out of here in no time. And I said, okay. And then I stepped out into the prison and I looked at 800 guys and I was like, how am I going to navigate this? 17 years old, how am I going to navigate this, right? How am I going to, how am I going to survive this? And so what I did is what I always did, right? I tried to win over your acceptance, right? I tried to win over. So I was a guy walking around. I'll give you an example. I was in a maximum security state prison. I had been in probably a year and a half, and I was walking through the child hall, which is the cafeteria for those of you who don't know. Um, and in prison, when I was in prison, I saw something really different last night. Really, really touched me deeply. And it was very hopeful. When I was in prison, the child hall and the yard and everything was very segregated mm -hmm. and very separated by race, by neighborhood, by ethnicity, all of, you know. And so, I, mean, I was a young guy that grew up in juvenile detention and all my friends from juvenile detention were already here in prison and guys from my neighborhood were there, people I looked up to. Um, and I would walk around this, this child hall and at every table I would be a different person. Okay? I would be a different person. I would talk differently. I would, I would have a different accent. I would use my hand. I was, I walked up to the guys that were all the Italian guys. I was, hey, doing, you know? Do you understand what I'm saying? I didn't, I didn't have my own identity. I didn't have my own, I never had an original thought. I was just this little kid trying to impress somebody else so that they would think something more of me than there was. Because there was nothing here. There was nothing. I was just a shell. I was just empty and alone and sad and afraid. Right? And um, and I never had my own original thought or my own opinion on anything. My opinion changed from table to table. The way I talked, the way I thought changed so that you would accept me. And so I turned that sentence that I was supposed to do two years on into five years. Just five years. I did every single day of that sentence. I did three and a half of that five years in the whole. All because of my need for you to accept me, and to you, for you to think something more about me than was true, right? And um, I got up after five years and picked a drink up the first day. Lasted six months completely in a blackout or a gray out for that six months. Back in jail with a brand new six to nine year sentence. 
And so my only thing I know is I can't do nine years, because if I do nine years, I'm going to be 30, or over 30 when I get out, and that's prehistoric. <laughs> and so I start to do things to try to create an illusion, right? The title of the book, The Big Hustle, right? That's, I'm a hustler, right? I'm just trying to have a, I'm a survivor, I'm a chameleon, I'm all those things, right? I'm just trying to, i got to figure out how can I not do nine years, that's it. And so, with that thought in mind, I started to do some things to try to create an illusion. Okay? I started going to AA, I started going to NA, I started going to a 12-step meeting, I started going to a therapy group. I started doing all these things, and then I couldn't just go to them. I had to run them all. Right? So I was in charge. I set up the chairs, I made the coffee, I gave up the chips, I signed the papers, I did it all. Right? And you'd see me walking around campus with my my big book, right? Trying to create an illusion. That's all I was doing. I was, I promised Trish I wasn't going to say it. I was just completely full of shit. I apologize, <laughs> I apologize for the language. I really do. But that's what I was. I was just, you know, they, you hear sometimes, fake it till you make it, right? And I was faking it. And I was faking it big time. And um, somebody took notice of me in spite of me being full of it. Captain Priest in prison to notice of me. He, he came up to me and he introduced himself to me. He said, Hi, you're Jim Wahlberg. I said, Yes, I am. He said, My name is Father Jim Freitas. And I've heard a lot of good things about you. And I have a job opening in the chapel. Would you be interested? And my first thought was, Not, ooh, I'm going to work in the chapel. I'm going to be with Jesus. My first thought was, Oh, he smokes cigarettes. So I'm definitely getting some cigarettes. Right? <laughs> Situation. I was only thinking about what, how I was going to manipulate this man of God. That's all I was interested in was me. Because the old saying is, I'm not much, but I'm all I seem to think about sometimes. <laughs> and so, right away, I start trying to hustle this situation and manipulate the situation to my benefit. Second day working in, in chapel, I said to him, hey, Father, uh, my younger brother apparently is in a singing group. And they have a cassette tape that they're selling at Tower Records. For the young people, I'll explain Tower Records. They have a cassette tape, too. And so I was like, is there any chance that you could bring me a cassette tape from my brother and his group? And he was like, absolutely, no problem. Right? And I was like, ooh, he's smuggling for me already. So, right? I had this whole plan. I was going to have a color TV. Because Father Freitas was going to smuggle for me. And so he brought that cassette tape into me. And I, was just, and I remember, first of all, hearing the music and being completely blown away. Not what I expected. But um, probably a week or so after I started this job, Father Freitas called me into his office and said, Hey, listen, here's the thing. You're the custodian here. And I need this chapel clean for Sunday morning for Mass. So what I need you to do is I need you to come to the vigil mass on Saturday so that you'll just be here, right? Because movement time, right? That was on a movement time. So the cell's open. Come, and then after the vigil mass, you can clean up, and it'll be clean for mass on Sunday morning. And I said, oh, yeah, no problem, Father. I can do that. I never even saw the move. I never saw him hustling me, right? <laughs> 
I was, you know, again, not much, but all I seemed to think about. So I wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of my own way to see somebody else hustling me, right? So here I am, I'm at mass. I'm at the vigil mass on Saturday evenings, and I'm back in a very uncomfortable place, right? Because when I was a young boy, I was threatened with God. Nobody told me God loved me. Nobody told me that God died. Jesus died for me. Nobody told me that about uh, forgiveness. No, I, I didn't know anything. Right? I just knew that when I went to church, I would go in there and I felt like all of the people in there were better than me. That I was a sinner and that they were all saints. That's how I felt. Right? And so I go and I clean up and I and I'm and I'm having these feelings and I don't know when to stand. I don't know when to kneel. For those of you who are not Catholic, we do a lot. Stand, kneel, you know, reply, all this stuff, and uh, and I didn't know how to do any of it. And I, my friend went to Max Wheatley, and he was a he was a dangerous, hardened criminal, bank robber, came from generations of bank robbers from Charlestown, Massachusetts, and uh, but he grew up Catholic. And his his being a bank robber to him was a career choice. It wasn't like, you know, I could be a cop, I could be a priest, or I could be a bank robber. I'll choose the bank robber, right? And But he was very, very Catholic. And he went to Catholic school as a kid, and so he knew the prayers, he knew the responses, he knew when to steal, he went uh, stand, and went to kneel, and do all these things. So I just watched him, just followed him. Um, I never saw him. I never, I never saw Father Freitas in his, his, his skills. Right? I was hustling for myself. He was hustling people for God. Right? <laughs> and, um, and so I'm back in Mass. Um, um, I'm not feeling anything. I'm just back, you know, because it was a process. Talking about feelings, there was a feeling that I had in those, in those meetings I was going to <coughs> that I was in charge of. Right? I had this overwhelming feeling that this was an amazing, incredible program for you people. But not for me. It was never going to work for me because I wasn't worth it. That's how I felt in my life. Okay? So, know that the people that you're dealing with, right? Their biggest critics are themselves. You know, the judge, their family, anybody else. It's us. It's me that just has no, no confidence, no faith in myself, in my abilities. I, I, I think the worst of myself, worse than anybody, even my victims, I think worse of myself than they do. Okay? And so, Father Freitas calls me into his office again. And he says to me, um, we have a very special visit to come to the prison. And I said, well, that's kind of Father, who's that? And he said, Mother Teresa is coming to this prison. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. Mother Teresa. I didn't know who she was. And I pro- again, I probably didn't know who the president was either. All right? And um, and so I start to, she's coming in two weeks, so I start doing some investigating and I start, you know, I, I remember I called home. I called my mother, collect. And um, as I was telling her that Mother Teresa was coming to the prison, she was repeating it, and her mother was in the background, and I could hear how excited she was. First time in my entire life I ever said anything that made this woman excited or even acknowledge my presence. Okay? With nine kids in my family, but only one of them mattered to my grandmother, and that was my sister, my sister Tracy, who she called her princess. The rest of us she had no time for. But the princess was but for the first time in my life I said something that 
made her interested or excited. And that's how I kind of knew that it was a big deal, if that makes sense, right? And so the day comes. The day comes, and Mother Teresa comes walking through the door of this prison. I was in the quad of this big, it looks like a college. I mean, that, that place we were in last night was gigantic, right? Um, it's like a college campus, except it has this big, giant, 40-foot wall around it, like razor wire, right? It's almost the same. And the door opens, and here comes all these people, and I see all these people with suits on, and I recognize the governor. I recognize the commissioner of the prisons. I recognize the warden. And then as they walk in, they spread out a little bit, and then I see her. I see Mother Teresa with a couple of her sisters walking towards us. And, um, you know, it was... I wasn't, um, I wasn't having any kind of spiritual experience in that moment. I was just kind of taking it in. And uh, she came closer, I noticed just a few things about her. I noticed her feet, her sandals, her toes were all crunched up. Her sandals looked like they were 200 years old. And I looked up and I saw her sweater that had moth holes in it. And it looked like it was 200 years old. And then I looked here and was, she had pockets right here. And there was cash sticking out of them. Money, right? You have people who used to just hand Mother Teresa money. And I'm in prison, and we don't see money. And I confessed to the guys last night, and I'll confess to you here today. I focused on that money probably a lot longer than I should have. I couldn't take my eyes off it. Good thing she was a saint, and then she had all those people around her, because who knows? Um... But she came and she went and she walked by us and I saw her, I didn't talk to her. Um, and then I went back to the chapel and Father Freitas, again, all excited, tells me, you know, you're gonna be part of the procession because you work here in the chapel. You're gonna be part of this whole event. And I'm like, I'm gonna be part of the procession. Oh, that's great, Father, what's a procession? You know, I don't know anything, right? He said, you're gonna walk in with all the important people. You're gonna be with us. As we, as we process, as we walk into this Mass, you're going to be with us. And I was like, wow, you're going to be with her. And I was like, wow, that's great. And we we processed in, and um, the Cardinal was there. And um, there was a lot of important people there, a lot of very recognizable people. Um, and, you know, the Cardinal... Uh, I always feel like I'm... And somehow, not saying nice things, and I don't want to. It's not my intention. But you know, he's got the big hat. He got the big chair. He's got the big staff. He's, you know, he's an important person, right? And and it's a lot to take in when you don't know really what's going on. And so we process in. He goes up onto the stage, which is set up as the altar in the gymnasium. MCI Concord, Group 2 in Massachusetts. And he's there, and he's in front of his chair, and he's beckoning Mother Teresa to come to the chair he has for her. And she just... And refuses to take her chair, right? To take her seat where the important people were. And instead, she went over and she knelt down with handmaids, her and her sister, on their knees, with the inmates. I, I know the people that were there. I was one of them. There's really a lot of dangerous people there. But she she chose to be with us. 
It was a very important moment in my life. She chose us. She chose me. In that moment, that's the way it felt. She chose me all of it. And um, and then it came time for her to speak. And uh, you know, she's <laughs> and she's speaking, and she said things that I never heard before. She told me that Jesus Christ died for me. That I was a child of God. And that he loved me. And that I was more than the crimes that I committed. And I was more than the number they had assigned to me. I was a child of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that in that moment, the 800 people in the room were not there. There was nobody else there. It was just her and me. She was talking to me. She was there. Special delivery for me. I don't know anybody else that had this profound experience. I don't know anybody else that was there that had this conversion in their life. But I want to tell you that at the end of that Mass, I was very confused. I was very emotional. I know it was... It, it was you ever had a concussion? <laughs> or, you know, like I was kind of vibrating. I didn't know what was going on, but I just went back to my cell. And I didn't sleep very well. And a lot of things were going on in my mind. Um, and I remember when the, when the doors opened in the morning for breakfast, I ran out of my cell. And I ran back to the chapel looking for Father Freitas. And he was there. And I said, Father, I need to know about this Jesus that she's talking about. I need, I need to know about this God, not what I was raised with. I need to know more about this. Can you please, can you help me? I don't know what's going on. And uh, I don't know if, if it actually happened, but in my mind, I, I, I feel like he just kind of chuckled a little bit and then checked this little box and was like, that one. Right? Like, like he had this plan now, right? Like he had that God... You know, told him, you know, we're going to do this together, right? And um, and and so we talked. He already knew that I hadn't made my confirmation, you know, 20, whatever, 22, 23 years old. And, um, and so he started to prepare me to make my confirmation. He started to catechize me. He started to teach me about my faith, right? He didn't hand me a book because I was incapable of that. Like a child, he sat with me and taught me in very simple words and very simple terms about Jesus Christ and about how much he loved me, right? And he started to teach me about my faith. And um, after a few months, um, they decided that they were going to transfer me to another prison. And he called me over to the chapel before I left. And he picked up the phone. And he called the priest in the next prison I was going to. And he said, I'm sending you a special delivery FedEx package. His name is Jim Wahlberg. And this is where we are in the process. Please, please handle with care. And that's all I heard. I'm sure there was more of a conversation between them two. Right? Like, hey, the guy's not that smart. But I take it easy with him, whatever it was. Right? And, and so I went to the next prison. And we picked up where we left off. And then six or seven months later, I got transferred again to a minimum security prison. 
and, uh, and he passed me on to the priest there. And before you know it, it was, it was that time. It was time for me to, to come into the church. It was time for me to be confirmed. And, um, and we were going to have an event. Like, we were going to have a little party, right? We were going to have a reception after my confirmation. And I, I called my mother. And I told my mother, I said, Mom, I'm going to make my confirmation. I would really like to be there. And um, so there's something that I, I left out in my first sentence. I told you that I did most of my time in the hole three and a half years. Three and a half years in the hole is so we understand what the hole is in Massachusetts. It's 23 hour a day lockout. Bar door, solid door, little window, no human contact. You don't come out of your cell without waist chains, leg irons. Um, you, when you do come out, you go outside into a dog kennel. 30 foot, 40 foot long cages, right? 20 feet tall, and you just walk back and forth. That's it, right? And so my mother came to visit me when I was in those conditions. And when, when I'm in those conditions, I'm not, I don't, remotely resemble the person you see here today, I can tell you that, right? I'm an animal because I'm put in animal conditions. And I don't have a solution. I don't have God. I don't have I just am just trying to make it through every day. And uh, and so I went out to visit her, you know, and and I'm sitting there and I'm talking to her behind a, a sheet of glass and I'm probably completely insane at this point from light deprivation and isolation and solitude and all these things. And uh, she just wept. She left. When she left, she knew I will never visit my child in prison again. And so here I am years later calling her to tell her I'm making the confirmation when she comes. And she's like, hmm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And, um, just let me think about it. Call me tomorrow. And so the next day I called her and I said, would you come? And she said, I'm going to come. I'm going to come. And she was hesitant and afraid and nervous. And the day came and I, and I was confirmed into the Catholic Church. And then we had our reception. And um, that day was the most important day of my life in, in, as it relates to my mother in our relationship moving forward for the next 30 years. <laughs> my mother just watched me. She just watched me, you know, she watched me make my confirmation and then she watched me interact with other human beings. She watched me with my head up. She watched me look people in the eye and talk to them. She watched me be a man. Right? She watched her son. In that instant, I, I had become a man. And not only had I become a man, but she knew that I was healed. She knew that I was healed. She knew that, that God touched me in a very deep and meaningful way. She knew she could see it all over me. And I didn't. I wasn't convinced of that in that moment. I always had the reservation that I was coming back to prison because that's what I did. I always came back. You know, I always... Juvenile. I spent from age 12 to 17 either homeless, in juvenile detention, in a group home, a halfway house, or a foster home. 
That was my life for five years, right? Um, and then I graduated 17 right to state prison, right? So I always had this reputation, you know, like I'm coming back, right? I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I maybe even felt a little bit like, hey, this hustle is working pretty good, right? Like, I'm, listen, yeah, I'm good at this, right? Um, but I also, there was a battle going on. There was a battle going on inside of me. Maybe I, maybe I can. I remember the day when I was walking to the yard and I thought, maybe I can do this. It was just a passing thought. It came and it went. Um, but it was the first time I ever had that kind of thought. Uh, and so, my mother is there. I make my confirmation. We have this beautiful experience together. Our relationship changed immediately. It was just, a, I, I didn't hear as much uh, caution in her voice when we spoke on the phone, those kinds of things, right? It wasn't like, hey, you're all better now. She was hopeful. There was hope, because there was never any hope before. It was always bad, always. And so, um, comes time for me to go see the parole board. I see the parole board, I walk in, three nice people in suits. They got my file, and it's, it's I mean, it's, it's like this big, everything. I ever did, everything I ever said, everything I ever thought, apparently was in this folder, right? The permanent folder that they, they talk about when you're a kid. So second grade or whatever, I think it's in there. And so I walk in and I give them the old easy does it, keep it simple, God bless you, I'm all better, I'm ready to go home. And the guy literally laughed at me. He laughed at me. He said, ha. He said, ah, yeah, okay, whatever. He said, listen, You've been here, you haven't gotten any trouble since you've been here this time, we'll let you go. And we'll see you when you get back. Right? Seems like an awful thing to say, right? It didn't really offend me in that moment. I kind of thought I'd probably see him again. <laughs> I, I probably, I, I, I felt like maybe I'd probably see him again. I'd be sitting in front of him again. So I probably should just say, okay, thank you. And then he was like, yeah, he's looking through the folder. He's, oh yeah, we got a letter here. And he opened up the letter, and it was a letter from my mother. So for some context of who my mother was as a, as a woman, my brother Bob got arrested, him and five of his friends, they go to court. They're all lined up in front of the judge and behind them stands each one of their mothers. And the judge says to the mothers, tell me about your boy. Oh, John is a wonderful lad. He helps poor ladies across the street. He's kind, he goes to school, he does his homework. Lie, 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 all the way down the line until I get to my mother. Tell me about your boy. Lock him up. He's rotten. He's rotten. He's gonna hurt somebody. He's dangerous. Yeah, I haven't seen him in a month. He doesn't go to school. He doesn't have a job. He drinks all day. She wouldn't tell the truth because it was in your best interest for her to tell the truth. But you were safe for being locked up, right? And she believed in consequences. Believed in that. And so that's who my mother was. And so he started to read the letter. And the letter went something like, before you stand to the man of God, it's safe, it's okay, you can let him go now. He ain't coming back, right? These are big words for me to hear from my mother, huge. Bigger than yes, you can go home, with well, those, well, those words, right? And so, I, I mean, they called me, right? Um,
heard those words, and it was going to be a period of time before I actually got to go home, right? It was I was in minimum security. Well, I was actually pre-release, and I was still seeing Lynn Levy from the SPAN program. He's now coming for pre-release to help me, to prepare me, to teach me, to help me navigate these waters, right? And she was still there. And she was, she was a rock for me. She was a rock. And, uh, and she was, man, you know, she wasn't a woman of faith. She was, she was a woman who believed in social justice. She was a, she was a woman that believed that people deserved an opportunity, that deserved a chance, and that their circumstances certainly can contribute to the condition that they find themselves in today. And that maybe we should look at that too, right? And, uh, you know, I got out. And, I, and, you know, I was a very different person from the first time I got out, but I was still consumed in fear, right? I had God in my life, and I was praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, and my knees were bruised, right? I was praying so much, but I was so afraid. I was so uneasy with being in the world, right? In prison, there are rules. There are regulations. There is a clock. They tell you what to do, when to do, and how to do it. And there's a level of respect between the men, right? I know if I step out of line with you that, you might hit me with something. You might hurt me, you might. And so there's a, a serious level of respect, right? You step on somebody's toes, you say, excuse me. And if you don't, then you're saying to them, I wanna, I wanna hurt you. And in the world, it's not like that. People bump into you, they step on your feet, they don't hold the door, they, do things. They live. They're just living lives. Everybody's on high speed, and um, and so um, you know, I was I was struggling. And Lynn was there. Lynn was there. Lynn was the same Lynn that she was in prison, but now we're in her office on Boylston Street, Boston, and she would just talk me through things, help me to process things, and she was. Not, like I said, not a faithful woman, but certainly she was the face of God for me in that in that moment. She was the only real person that I could rely on and depend on. And that would tell me the truth, you know? And, um, you know, I'm out of prison, and I'm struggling, but, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the, the one thing... I'm struggling more with my faith in my relationship with God. I'm not struggling with the fact that I know I can't use alcohol or drugs. Like, I knew that was the number one thing. And I gotta tell you something. Every time I got arrested, I was completely trashed. Blacked out. A mess. Every single time I got arrested. And But never once did it ever occur to me that maybe I shouldn't drink. <laughs> or maybe I should go to a program where I didn't even know they existed. Like, I didn't know anything. Everybody in my life did what I did, but I did it a little harder than they did. They always were able to sort of be able to still live at home with their family, right? And I would sleep outside, right? And um, I knew I couldn't, I knew I couldn't drink, I knew I couldn't use. And, um, 
I was struggling with my faith. I was struggling with my relationship with God. And I had people around me giving me permission. And this is no slander on anybody. I want you to know that, right? That they were giving me permission to create my own conception of God. And I want to tell you that I'm incapable of creating my own conception of God. I'm incapable of doing that, right? I believe in, in, in my Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in my faith. I believe in my church. I, if you leave it up to me to create my own conception of God, he's probably going to be a fool hustler. I'm not going to need to confess. I'm not going to need to be accountable for my behavior. I'm just going to be like, I'm sorry, and I'm going to be okay, right? And so I drifted away from my faith, and I was... Where I was, was I was still a pretty good guy, but I was a good guy, I think, you know, whatever that means, right? Um, and I spent a lot of time working on the outside, right? Because I was back to not having my own opinion. I was back to managing life on my own, right? I was trying to wrestle satisfaction and happiness out of the world, right? And I was back to being more concerned about what you thought of me than what I thought of me, right? So I spent time, I got a lot of fancy stuff. I got a fancy car, I got lots of gold chains, I got, you know, I was always in the company of a beautiful woman. I, like all the stuff that you, so you could say, wow, he's really doing great business, look at him, right? He's shining like a new penny, right? And inside I'm dying again. Right? Believe me when I tell you it was a miracle that I didn't pick up a drink. It was a miracle that I didn't pick up a drug just to calm myself and to fill the empty void that was back in my soul. Um, I have no idea where I am on time. Okay, I'm 57, so we got plenty of time. So I'm struggling. And uh, my wife comes to me and she says, we're living in Boston, I'm living in the neighborhood I grew up in, I'm living around the corner from, I used to live under a friend of mine's front porch. Okay? Three-decker house, the trash barrels are lined up here behind the trash, a little trap door going under his front porch. It was just dirt. I used to live there. And now I'm around the corner and I just bought my first home. Right? I bought a house. I had a wife. I had a couple of kids. I was feeling pretty, you know, like, the world was like, you are very successful in, this is like as far as you can get from here to here, right? But I was not. I was suffering. I was managing. I was white knuckling. I was holding on to dear life, right? Because I, I was empty inside. I was empty inside again. And so my wife came to me and she said, hey, uh, we're moving to Florida. You can come with us if you like. Right? She's gonna move. She don't want to be here anymore. She's sick of the, the stuff. There's a lot of stuff that goes on when you have famous, famous family members and you live in your neighborhood. There's a lot going on. A lot of people that have that are disingenuous. That's even the word. Check that. Um, but anyways, so I say, yeah, we'll move to Florida, right? And we move to Florida, and I'm going to my meetings, and I'm home, and I am really not doing that. I am really empty inside. I'm spending more and more time in my room by myself. Not with my children, not with my wife. I was separating myself, I was isolating myself, and I was preparing myself for disaster. Okay? And um, my wife 
Uh, we were going to church a little bit, and you know, I would literally, there was a point where I was driving my family to church on Sunday, and they were going in, and I was staying outside. That's where I was. I became resentful as a church. I became resentful at my faith. I became resentful at all of it, and I was just, again, just trying to manage. And um, my wife went on a retreat and had a reversion of epic proportions. Now, to give you a little reference on my wife, my wife was is an amazing, amazing woman. We've been together 30 years. She is unbelievable. A mother, wife, servant, lover of Christ, incredible. Back then, a little hard, a little rigid, you had to be, because I was just such a pain in the neck, you know? And, um, you know, she was, she was good that she never could forgive me for anything, could never move on from things. So, like, if we were, it was our anniversary, or we were at a restaurant looking at each other in the eyes, telling each other how much we loved each other, she'd go, oh, yeah, you remember that time five years ago? When you, <laughs> but she went on this retreat, and God melted her heart. And she came home, and she was different. She wasn't telling me she was different. She was different. She was kinder, more gentle, more forgiving, more patient, right? It was attractive. It was attractive. Um, and, you know, my wife, when my wife gets into something, anybody that's married that has a wife, you know, if your wife gets into something, it's a very short period of time before you will also be into that something. <laughs> or you will pay the consequences for not being into that something, right? You'll hear about it all day. She has this reversion, she comes home, she's kind, gentle, and loving, and she waited a while, a good period of time before she started suggesting, gently, maybe I should also go on a retreat. Maybe I should, you know, try to re-examine my relationship with God. Maybe I should. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. I'm good. I got my God of my own understanding, the God that I created, which is essentially me. Right? <laughs> and so... She has a, a, her best friend uh, is a lovely woman from Ecuador, and um, they went on that retreat together, and then they started to conspire together <laughs> to get their husbands to a retreat, and we knew that they were conspiring to get to a retreat, so we conspired against their conspiracy. <laughs> we got together, we made a covenant with each other. We ain't going. It ain't happening. Right? Here we are, conspiring against our own families. We're conspiring against our children. Right? We're conspiring against their happiness and their eternal souls. That's what we're doing. We're conspiring. That's where we are in our journey, in our walk. Right? And so, um, yeah, we had we made this covenant. We ain't breaking the line. It was like we were a union line. We were on strike, and we ain't don't break the line. Right? And um, things are happening in my family, and my family's falling apart. My son is on drugs. He's struggling. I'm struggling. My wife is struggling. My marriage is a mess. And um, and so there was a retreat coming up. And my wife said to me, there's a retreat coming up in about a week or two. Maybe you should think about it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm good. And, uh, she, but she wasn't happy. She had already signed me up. <laughs> and... Um, 
you know, I was everything I had in me. I was making plans. I was making a business trip that weekend. Like, I was doing everything I could to not go on that retreat. And, uh, and then my wife pulled out the secret weapon. She said, my 12-year-old daughter in the top My 12-year-old daughter came to me and she said, Daddy, I want you to go on this retreat. I want you to be happy. I want you to know Jesus. 12 years old, crush me. Crush me. Rip the mask right off my face. Right? That's what she did. She ripped the mask right off my face. And so I, of course, said, absolutely, I'm going to go on this retreat. How can I? And I... And my mind went back to what my mind always goes back to. How am I gonna how am I gonna manage this? How am I gonna get my way? How am I gonna you know and I thought eh, I did ten years in prison. I can do a weekend with these idiots. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about, right? And I went to the retreat and I had my brothers will tell you, I walked into that retreat, I had a hooded sweatshirt on, I had the hood on. Right? And I was you know, I, I, I like to say I was doing the Heisman, right? They were all hugging and then I was like, <laughs> you know, God is so, so incredible. And, in, in, you know, see, I'm playing checkers. He's playing chess, right? He's moving the pieces to get me to the place where I can recognize that it's him I need to be focused on, not me, him. And so... I go to the retreat because I can't not go to the retreat. There's thousands of people now. My wife has thousands of people praying for me <laughs> on the retreat, right? I go on the retreat and I'm there and I'm really just. And the retreat is a series of people sharing their testimonies and doing things, you know. I can't tell you the real specifics, but you get it if you've ever been on a retreat. And, uh, and I'm sitting there the whole time and I'm like, day one, I'm like, this is really, really weird. And I don't belong here. This is so weird. But I can't leave because I can't go home and explain to my 12-year-old daughter that I left the retreat that I couldn't handle it. And, um, and God, in his mercy, just started to put thoughts in my mind. The thoughts were, eh, that going to kill me. Right? I can get through this. Whatever. I'll just, I'll go on autopilot. I'll just sit here. And, and I had 20 years of experience listening to people give their testimonies in AA meetings, right? They didn't call them their testimony, but they're telling their story, right? So I could handle that. And I could connect with guys telling me about their difficulties. I, I could get that. And, and, you know, little by slow, I started to, my heart started to melt. Literally, it started to melt. To the point where... Um, Again, you know, anyone that's ever been on a Catholic retreat, you know, at some point there's going to be confession, right? <laughs> I wasn't aware of that at that moment. But at this point, I'm a bucket. I'm crying. I'm so emotional. My heart has been completely melted because I realized, see, I put, I put Jesus into only the human form. I made him like one of my buddies, like... I, I, I compared him to myself in, in this way. If you do something to hurt me, I become resentful. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't want to see you anymore. Stay the heck away from me. I put Jesus into that category. I limited him to a flawed human being. 
where I thought he was mad at me and resentful at me. I didn't understand that he was just there, waiting for me to peek back in his direction so he could get his loving arms around me again and bring me home. I didn't know that. I thought he was mad at me. I was back to the, the God of my childhood, right? Punishment, right? Hell, that's where I was going. And, and, I, and I felt his presence. I felt his presence in my heart on that night. And I stumbled into that room with that priest. And I don't even... I'm like, definitely not making words. And he was like, listen, there's like 30 other guys behind you. We, are, we can't do this all night. And I was just confessing. I was just, just spewing, right? All this weight, all this sin, all this, the way I was living my life was just so not correct. It was just not, I was not correct. You know, I, was, I was not living a good life. I was, it was all an act. It was all a facade. It was, I had all kinds. I didn't just have one mask on. I had a whole bunch of masks on. And, um, and by the time I left that retreat, the next day, I mean, I was essentially like a bucket of tears. Like, I wasn't even a person anymore. And then my wife and family came for the ceremony, and they were like, here you go. You can take him home. And when we got there, they took our cell phones away, which is really scary for me. And, um, and then after the retreat, you know, they give you a little bag, and you have the ceremony, and, and I went home, and I, my phone was in the bag, and we stayed in the bag. And I went home, and I remember being curled up on my bed, in the field position, howling, crying, just so grateful, so grateful that I had another chance, so grateful to feel his presence again in my life. Because, you see, before, I had an excuse. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know that Jesus died for me. I didn't know that God loved me. I didn't know any of these things. And now I knew, and I walked away. So the guilt was tenfold. The pain, the sorrow, the suffering was tenfold, right? Because I knew when I walked away. And, and, and I knew that I had, I felt him, and I knew that I had learned some very difficult lessons. The very difficult lessons that I learned was that any relationship that I wanted to have with anybody was going to require effort on my part. I wasn't just going to be able to have this feeling I have right now and just coast along for the rest of my life. But I was going to have to put some effort in it. I was going to have to give Jesus some of my time, some of my treasures, some of my talents. I was going to have to serve him and serve humanity. I was so far away from being a person of service. My first job when I got out of prison, I worked in a, in a detox. Dual diagnosed with detox for homeless people. Literally wiping people's fannies, cleaning up after them, not being able to control their bodily functions, like real, real stuff, and I was so honored to do it, right? And I was so far away from that now. Um, I know I have just a couple of minutes, and um, and I know that for anybody that's ever heard my testimony, it, it's, it's different every single time. It's different every single time. The Holy Spirit pushes me in a direction and I think that I, I believe, I trust that somebody needed to hear it that way today, right? Um, I cannot emphasize enough to you what it means to people, 
Even the people that are like, ah, get away from me, uh, you know, get away from my cell, I don't want to hear that, uh, they see you. They see you once, then they see you twice, then they see you three times, and they just see you coming back, and coming back, and coming back. And every, it touches every single person. Because they start to realize that they matter to somebody, that they have value. And I, I, I am absolutely honored to be here, to be in your presence, to be in the presence of people that, no matter what their journey is, they want to serve. They want to serve God's people, right? Mother Teresa, again, she talked about doing those little things with great love, right? Taking care of those that are lost, but thrown away and forgotten, Okay? I did a, com- uh, a little commercial for a, a campaign a Christian prison ministry organization is doing. They're a big, giant organization. And it's called Second Chances. Be the key. Be the key. Right? Be the key. Look around, folks. Look around. The whole chain of keys here. Right? You are the key. You, you are Jesus Christ for, for every one of these men and women. Believe it. If you never mention his name, it's okay. Because you are him for them. And you are him for me. And I am honored to be in your presence, and I thank you all, and God bless you all.